everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in, am I in Champagne? I'm on the boundary of Champaign-Urbana in this very yeah, building. In a liminal right? space. Yeah. I'm in a liminal space. And I'm with somebody whose last name is pronounced differently depending on where she is. Mm-hmm. So Amanda, whose last name is properly pronounced Carphone. No, to be serious. So <laughs> here, in, here in Illinois, yes. how do you pronounce we it? We say Seaphone. Seaphone. And when you're in Latin America? I say chafone. Chafone. Or if I want good tables at Italian restaurants. Here in the chafone, United States? Yes. But since my dad went to elementary school, it's been siophone. Siophone. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. And you're a professor here at Illinois, Amanda. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what you're working on these days. And then we might, since we, we feel as though we're in a cornfield almost, <laughs> we'll go back, 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 <laughs> like in a baseball stadium, okay. you know, to when Amanda was little. But right now we're talking about Amanda as big, as professional adult. Grown Amanda, okay. So tell us what you're working on now. Okay, well I actually have a couple of projects, a couple of balls in the air. And actually maybe it's because I'm back from parental leave that I feel like sort of, you know, all cylinders are firing. I'm excited to be back back at work. So you've re-entered the semiotic state. You can (laughs) now create meaning again. (laughs) So I have a couple of things. This summer, actually in a very different, I started a very different project this summer. So I just got back from IMCR recently. The International Association for Media and Communication Research. Yes. Which was in Canada? It was in Montreal. Montreal. Yeah, I think it was the first sort of U.S.-Canadian one ever, maybe. I think that's how they were billing it. Well, Montreal was lovely in July. Fabulous, fabulous city. I mean, it's not not, not a patch on champagne, but you know. (laughs) No, it was a a You're going to slum it. It was definitely a step up, yeah. (laughs) So there I presented very new work on, on aging. I'm sort of mm-hmm. starting a new project on the kind of cultural representations and constructions, political economy of aging. So that presentation is a paper I'm working on, um, on constructions of uh, the baby boom generation and retirement finance. So. Can you help me? <laughs> yeah, no, really I was going to say, every time I give the paper, I'm, I have to give the caveat that's like, I cannot help you at all with your 401ks. It's actually specifically about 401ks. <laughs> and 401ks, and no... for those outside the U.S., yes. are uh, investment retirement accounts yes. that people rely on here in the United States, basically through mutual funds by right. and large, and there's a certain tax protection. Right. And so basically, in a very recent phenomenon, actually, so they it started off in changes to the tax code, I think it was like the, like 1978 or 79. It's that late, and didn't really even start to be in the general kind of populace until the very late 1980s. And it was meant to be just sort of really rich executives who had their own stable pensions, right? Not like us, sadly. Who would then have this extra kind of benefit tax relief when it came to retirement savings? But became the kind of way in which um, most corporations and universities and private universities in the United States, at least, um, have made kind of retirement financing or the kind of funding of our old age um, outsourced onto individuals and the ways in which kind of pensions have been cut and a kind of logic for the threat to social security and other forms of socialized collective retirement financing. And public universities too are moving away from guaranteed payouts. Oh, absolutely. So if you joined the University of California in the last, I don't know, five years, 
you didn't have the guarantee payout. Yes, I got hired here just as we got You got under the line? No, no, yeah, I was the first. So we have exactly this sort of like non-profit version of the kind of um, individualized retirement. And so it was interesting in the ways in which uh, the finance industry both lobbied around and produced advertising around uh, the sort of sense of the the baby boomer generation as the kind of liberated individualist, sort of like countercultural critique of sort of so. And you see these amazing commercials in the U.S. with like Dennis Hopper for like Ameriprise Financial. It was really unbelievable. Um, this they had these characters, this woman Carol, on a series of ads by Fidelity, in which she, um, you know, goes from like flower child to retiree and like what that how that. Um, she can shape her own kind of life course and what that means. So I'm sort of interested in that as a kind of larger project in the ways in which we construct productive bodies, unproductive bodies, mm. and communicate. But that's a very new kind of project. So I think that's kind of just... And how did you get turned on to that? Honestly, I sort of thought about it. Um, and I, I, wanted to have to, I wanted to have a kind of international dynamic too, I should say, because it's, there's this sort of discourse around there being crises, age, demographic crises in certain parts of the world and not in others and what that means. And um, So I was originally thinking about these questions around aging for graduate school as a potential dissertation. I remember meeting with the, the director of graduate studies and he said, oh, you can't do that project, you'll only get a job in a gerontology department. I was like, uh... But it was actually my mom who was, you know, in conversations with her about being the kind of, like, sandwich generation of having kind of dependence on both sides of them. Mm. Um, and starting to think about the ways in which we conceive of age and culture and conceive of age sort of in terms of the kind of economic productivity of society. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's a kind of... We'll see if that, that takes off. Um, and then, uh, then another kind of side project in which I'm trying to conceive of kind of visions of sort of capitalist visions of internationalism, I guess is the way I'm sort of thinking about it. And so I just finished an article this past year, um, which I called The Magical Neoliberalism of World Systems Films. Um, or network films, I think I was there. <laughs> I think this is a mixed metaphor of some I, it is, it immense is. size. Basically, I was interested in all these these movies from the 1990s on. Mm-hmm. I charted, um, I'm sure it irritated him, but I basically took Ordwell in one of his recent books as this whole like list of what he calls network films. This sort of like. This is a, a, a man is referring to David Boardwell, who is the uh, film formalist par excellence of cinema studies in the English language. But he's also, interestingly, the author of really an impeccably materialist history of the development of narrative and technology co-author um, with Janet Steiger and Kristen Thompson and is also the author of a very smart uh, anti-Western Marxist ideology version of the so-called theoretical underpinnings of film theory in the English language. Hmm. That's a great synopsis in four sentences. So he has this sort of filmography of, of network films. Does he? It's sort of like multi-protagonist um, stories in which various narratives are sort of woven together, um, usually around some sort of social problem. So, but not, actually, this is not—he doesn't conceive of the social problem necessarily. But just he's interested in the, the sort of way in which this form has happened across since the beginning of film. But when you actually chart, I just made a sort of bar graph of yeah. those films. There, there's like, you know, five each kind of decade until you hit the 90s and then there's, you know, like 50 and then like 
hundred. So this is the Manuel Castells becomes exactly formalism film form. and style. And yeah. so I was really interested in the ways in which. And then so then I was thinking about which films actually do it, and it became. Yeah. It just seems like it became the kind of the way to represent um, global social problems. So mm. like traffic and. Um, uh, health, 360. Health, yes. Um, yeah, health, so contagion. Yeah. All of these movies, there's Babel, all these kind of like internationalization, mm. kind of global yeah. um, social reform films had this kind of network narratives. And so it's sort of. And post Cold War also is yes. probably relevant in this, I imagine. Absolutely. Right. So these films yeah. were like made from the right. mostly in the 2000s, but the 1990s on. And so I was interested in the ways in which mm. like, formally they had this, thematically they were trying to represent mm. issues of kind of. Uh, like connection and interconnection yeah. issues, and um, and then also uh, the ways in which they were obviously produced in like situations of kind of um, uh, basically like runaway production and um, mm-hmm. uh, really flexibilized kind of network modes of, of capital um, creating movies, and so I sort of map these sort of three and And by runaway production, Amanda's referring to the tendency of cinema that allegedly is located either industrially or textually in place A, in fact to be located either industrially or textually or both in places B, C, D through Z, based on subvention systems or other comparative advantage factors that attract mm-hmm. the filmmakers in order to depress their costs and maximize their return on investment. Yes? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and these films, some of them, so you have, you know, uh, Iñárritu, for example, talking about González Iñárritu. González Iñárritu. Yeah, yeah, talking yeah. about the ways in which, um, you know, Babel was made, like, fast and loose, basically, right. which, like, right. we had production units, you know, in North Africa very quickly filming for just a couple of weeks, and yeah. right, those kind of below-the-line workers sort of disappeared, and they pop up in right. a different group in Mexico, as they, and they put together this sort of narrative. So it's um, this disorganized capitalism, yeah. post-industrial yeah. world, right. post-Fordist yeah. Sphere. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, at the same time, representing issues that seem to also be kind of symptoms of that world, right? In the kind of con- yes. theme and content. Of so the, the films political themselves. economy and the textuality are right. married. Yes. Although sometimes they aren't necessarily. Not, they can be autonomy between the two. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, anyways, that's. Oh, so it's interesting. Other examples of that. Um, but. And is this this article is coming out? Somewhere? This is actually just out just um, in the International Journal of Communications. Oh, so well, Castells would have loved yeah. it then. Presumably, <laughs> I hope so. some kind of proof that his mad theory yeah, is correct. So, I hope so. He, he deigned to publish it, so I appreciate it. <laughs> this um, is a for those listeners who are interested. This is a journal you can read for free mm-hmm. online. So it's really great Amanda's publishing in such places, and that all of us can can enjoy it's reading. It's nice because there's a lot of images. They allow you to, to sort of link to online sources really nicely. So it's yeah. So it's good that way. There's a lot of. I have a lot of pictures. And Little pretty pictures. Pretty People pictures like that in media Exactly. Studies. Keep on going. Keep on reading. <laughs> the thing I should be most pressingly working on, which is what I'm working on, is trying to finish um, this book about the globalization of the Coca-Cola company and its cultural representations as it entered markets around the world, popular meanings that were made from it, and social movements' use of um, those sort of corporate visions to create kind of connections. The globalization of Coca Cola. Yes, I know. I mean, that's a small topic. Right, I would have thought you could race that off in a weekend. Right, I really. know, and, it's, and I, it really, and it's trying to, I'm trying to kind of look at, not that it's a very long span, but at the span of the corporation itself in terms of its international growth. So it's really a story from like 1920 to the present. 
right, right. Am I right in thinking, Amanda, that during the Cold War they did a deal with the federal government that they would provide free coke to the our boys, provided that the advanced places around Europe where they set up the temporary factories they could then basically use after the war? Yes, exactly. That is so, true. Well, yeah, it is in some yeah. ways. So the in World War Two. Um, they, well, there was this, this real concern that, and because it, it had hit the company pretty hard in World War One, that sugar rationing would really kind of uh, halt production, um, both in the United States and around the world. Or if nothing else, sugar prices would be so steep, right? That it would. So then, Coke launched this kind of massive lobbying campaign to argue to the U.S. government that uh, drinks like Coca-Cola could boost not only the kind of physical stamina of our fighting boys around the world, yes, but also the kind of morale, right, for kind of, you know, God, country, and Coca-Cola kind of <laughs> spirit. Life, um, liberty, and the pursuit of Coca-Cola. Yes, place. exactly, yeah. as well as the kind of Coca-Cola pinup girls yeah. at this time period, which are really central um, to Coke's advertising. Is that a church? It's, well, it's actually ringing. the math department. It's the math department. <laughs> so is it ringing on time? Or has it failed to do so? Actually, right on 3.30. Okay. Yeah, it's a nice yeah. job. So anyways, they yeah. basically lobbied the government so so strongly that the suggesting, um, and actually interested some of this kind of health discourse mm. continues to, mm. to the day as we talk about the kind of um, battles around sugary soft drinks in the moment and health mm. um, they argue that this kind of like calorie consumption would be really kind of helpful in degrading young men and so the US government um, not only gave them a kind of pass on uh, the kind of sugar restrictions they'd also established a kind of relative wing of the military called um, the coca-cola technical observers and these <laughs> the guys yeah would i think i can't remember how many of there were there, there weren't so many of them but basically they were charged with setting up both mobile units to follow the troops yeah as well as yeah. bottling plants in different places where right. they're stationed right, right. and then those it was really the ways in which they got a, a foothold so but like when they occupied italy for example and yeah. bits of germany didn't they then leave these things there yes and they became the yeah. became the plants and so i basically my book tells us this, this history of the the company through um, the history of the company in two places because I, I felt like it needed to be localized, had specificity. Yes. So Colombia and India, and the, it's the story of how they enter mm. India. Basically, um, they follow the U.S. and British troops um, in like bases in, in India. Not that there was much action like in World War II in India, um, but uh, they and actually the the Indian family that will be the kind of leaders of football bottling through the 1970s. Um, were actually furniture makers who outfitted the uh, U.S. military kind of leaders who were stationed there and, and diplomats and um, had wow. a close connection, yeah, to, to Coca-Cola consumption through that way. And then just another the, great American franchise. corporate, truly private enterprise success yes, story, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, it's so inspirational, isn't it? We realize <laughs> that government true. only gets in the way and I never know. facilitates Let, anything. Don't but follow it's, the market. It's this damn laissez-faire entrepreneurialism. Right. It's everything happening. It's true. <laughs> but one of the things that makes this possible is so that's obviously a story of the ways in which capital, right, sort of not just um, you know benefits from functioning um, and it's not it's like strong state power sometimes, but mm. also uh, you know like benefits directly from kind of working alongside it, right? Uh -huh. And mm -hmm. um, 
but the, the way in which that this really becomes possible, um, you know, Coke's growth internationally is because of they have this specific kind of like franchise model. So these technical mm -hmm. observers may have set up the plants, but the sort of long-term business yeah. that was established is because, you know, they create a kind of, um, or work with a kind of social, economic, and political elite in different parts of the world, right, right. as right. franchise modelers. where there's not potable water, uh, they also become a supposedly healthy alternative, even though, of course, they're using right. possible water right. that could be otherwise disposed, yeah. correct? Well, so the, yeah, so the history in India then continues in the same way. So this, this family bottled Coca-Cola in India, I, they had, I think they had almost a, maybe a dozen, I should remember, um, plants around India, and there were several other kind of franchise bottlers in India through the 1970s. But then, actually, Coke was... <laughs> kicked out of India um, in the kind of nationalist uh, oh. critique. Nehru? It was actually the Janata party. So oh, really? So the, the side? Yeah. So it's... Because he drank his own urine in preference to Coca-Cola. Well, this becomes a huge issue. That No, they're, they're, like, that's the way the most U.S. press is framing it, right? These kind of like right so, damn it. Yeah. Like Those the, damn foreigners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's this really Orientalist kind of representations of the ways in which... Um, you know, and this, this sort of sense that they're, they're so like foreign and mis like uh, you know confusing, but also that they're hurting their own people, right? By by interfering with U.S. capitalism abroad. Um, but and in, in India, there's this really strong strong discourse of um, that Coca-Cola is not just a kind of. This is obviously like the the moment in which there's a kind of rising dependency kind of critique in in India of you know not just mostly obviously British capitalists but also US capitalism functioning there and so but also kind of like bodily manifestation of it that in fact it, it, these are drinks that are kind of could hurt the kind of um, Indian body politics. Hindu masculinity exactly. always a, a fragrant topic for them when it comes to development issues right. and I also am thinking about how I was there in 2002 when as part of the neoliberalization of India it was a big deal that for the first time, really, I think, it's fair to say, Valentine's Day was celebrated and there were mass protests against the very successful marketing of Valentine's Day cards right. by U.S. Yeah. capital. The other thing that's going on, I guess, in the 70s is that really throughout the Cold War, the U.S. has thrown its weight behind Pakistan more than yes, India, yeah. which, of course, it then drops full-heartedly after 89, 91, etc. But basically, you know, there was a lot of anti-US sentiment and anti-Indian sentiment at oh, a yeah. geopolitical level, Abs right? and, and this is actually the moment, too, that the, the Carter's in, uh, president, and Carter is a, a Georgian boy, and he actually has really connect, uh, direct connections with Coca-Cola. Which is Coca-Cola's origins in Atlanta. And he's making right? statements about, like, on the press junket before he's elected that Coca-Cola is served as this, like, his own, like, foreign affairs bureau. Like, wherever he goes, he gets to travel with them, and da-da-da. And, and so there's the U.S., right, kind of um, geopolitical interests and, right, sort of corporate capitalism in terms of Coca-Cola's representation become um, really closely linked. And yes, you have in Pakistan. There's also in India a major scandal um, about companies of all stripes, like Indian as well as, you know, British and American, um, basically taking, you know, paying off politicians massive amounts. There's a whole bribery kind of scandal, and so there's this sort of growing kind of anti-corporate critique um, that's very kind of local at that moment. Um, so they're, they're kicked out of the country until the 90s, and so it's not really until the moment of neoliberalization that Coca-Cola gets invited back in to actually pretty great fanfare, and then um, almost... 
immediately or within a decade they get embroiled into all sorts of debates about, um, I think for good reason, uh, what the kind of, um, what, you know, what the kind of neoliberal, uh, you know, interests of, of corporations and a post-colonial state uh, can serve to a, a populace that's really been kind of denied functioning services from both of them for decades. So the issues around water and the sort of safety of what it is to drink play out really strongly in the Coke for in two ways. There's this um, kind of critique of obviously the sort of, again, foreign elements intruding into Indian culture. Um, and that actually comes manifested very specifically in that there actually is the discovery of large, or not traces, but significant traces of pesticides in bottled drinks, um, sodas and water bottled by the likes of Coca-Cola, as well as other Indian companies, whatever. And so it becomes this sort of middle class kind of crisis around consumption. You know, they thought that suddenly they were entering into the kind of world of commodities of, um, that was being offered, right, by the kind of free market opening of, of India. And then suddenly those commodities are like, they're being betrayed, right, by these very, and they're choosing those commodities over like water from from wells, right, or public services, because they deemed them to be better. And there must be some cola-based Indian drinks. You would oh yes, think, anyway. Yeah, they're well. Organic. Coke bought out a lot, the most popular one, Thumbs Up, when they re-entered the country because they're not stupid, right? <laughs> but there's yeah, there are absolutely, um, and there's also other drinks too, like juices, right? Obviously chai tea, like other. But um, and this was a sense that like these kind of brand drinks that are branding themselves yep. as more like modern and safer were actually not safe. Right. And then in the same time, there's this this um, social movement that emerges amongst the communities in which Coca-Cola then locates their plants and which are sort of rural um, locations outside of metropolitan or between With horrendous runoff Exactly. Pollution, right. Local agricultural health and safety and exactly. And and yeah. the drawing right. a ton of water. Yep. And so those communities um, are and they're naturally drying out given global warming, yep. right? I mean I mean no. not naturally drying out, but drying out. Yeah. And then um, so there's there's real battles amongst and they have a, a history of like riparian rights, like really mm -hmm. active sort of sense that this is our land and we right can, and as an agricultural country, right, of which you know, up until I don't even know what it is now, but for you know, most of its history, the majority of the Indian populace is in, in rural situations, right? And so there's a strong sense of the kind of, um, you know, rural identity mm. of the farmer. Mm. And so these communities are up in arms that they no longer have safe drinking water and they blame the coke plants, right, that are in their midst. So this, this battle over what's safe and what, um, what people can consume. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's go this round. So that's actually the sort of second to last chapter of the book. And, then, uh -huh. um, so. and the Colombian part? Because at one time, wasn't the CEO of Coke a Latin American, maybe from Peru or somewhere? I'm trying He's to remember. Cuban. Cuban? Uh -huh. Cuban so Miami, like Cuban? Um, yes. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and so he uh, and he actually was one of and that was in sort of the 1980s. Right. Was, he died in. He got sick. Right. Yeah. I don't know the history I of that. Think so. I think so. My uh, 
on the rare occasions I go to Atlanta, I always go to the Coke Museum, partly because I love their archive of TV commercials they, they have do, there, they do. which is really something. Yeah, they have a strong sense of their importance, <laughs> so they, they do a very good job of them. Well, there's also, I also go to the, there's a bra museum in New York, which is much more private, and you've got to sign on to get in, because they don't want, like, teenage boys going, <laughs> but they also have a wonderful archive of, they? you know, yeah. Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby singing songs about the cross your heart bra or wonder bra or some bloody thing but I love these corporate yeah, museums no, the cor they're really yeah. wonderful and the world of Coca-Cola which is the, the corporate museum as it, I don't know if they kept that name for the new one it's had a couple of iterations has it and the okay. new one is I don't know if, if you've been in the last four or five nope. years it's brand new it's actually um, in a new location next to the aquarium, which Coca-Cola is funded, and next to the CNN Museum. So it's like this whole kind of... Oh, because of course CNN is based yes. historically in Atlanta yeah. as well, because it's Ted Turner. So it's this kind of fascinating... Oh, interesting. Um, anyway, so, sorry to interrupt. No, no. So, so there's a... Uh, what is the story with Columbia yeah, as so, a, a major site? Well, so yeah, so I, I, I... What brought me in some ways to the project is, is this, this history of... Um, Coke in Colombia and the recent kind of labor struggles of a, of a union, one of the unions that, that represents Coca-Cola workers, um, and it's it's a complex everything. Colombia is muy complicado, as they say down there, um, and it, this one is as well. In that, um, and much of the book actually discusses. Uh, which we can talk about too, both was sort of earlier entrance in the Colombia and how it kind of signified both the U.S. and U.S. companies' um, kind of entrance into global marketplaces. And, mm. um, and, and Colombia is a kind of really good representative example of that. Um, but in the, the, the labor story, and so there's labor moments through all that, but the one that I think captured um, a lot of international attention and, and Colombian attention as well is um, in the 1990s, there was this convergence of a lot of um, factors. The Colombian franchise um, was owned by an American who became a kind of Colombian, um, American expat in Colombia. Um, but it remained in his family for, for decades as a family with um, Statens who owns not only the majority of Colombian bottling plants, here. Sorry, everybody. That is my telephone going through my computer. No, it's all right. I did okay. say to you they may be phone calls, no, right? But I, I didn't think they'd be families. coming actually through this mechanism. So anyway, no, sorry about right. that. Um, both to the caller and to Amanda. So the in this family, they so they own a bunch of plants in Colombia. They own plants in Mexico. Um, couple other countries and then they, they continue to expand. They, the son, for example, of, um, or actually the grandson, they're still on the board of these companies. There's a bunch of grandsons. One of them um, owns like 1,800 McDonald's franchises across 20 countries in Latin America. And of course there's McDonald's and Coca-Cola you know, tends to get served in McDonald's. Yes, so exactly. So they serve, and, and they similarly function along a franchise model of sort of expansion, right? Um, so this, this powerful family, but the, the company went public in the 1990s um, and they got a lot of investment so they could expand further. Um, they became a kind of what Coke calls an anchor bottler, which is the ways in which the, comp the company, the U.S.-based company, 
sort of pushes its uh, agenda of um, growth by creating these kind of kind of mega consolidated bottling companies. And so they became the kind of Latin American bottling company, which involves investment by Coca-Cola US, the, the US company. Um, and right, a push to grow as well as this sort of strenuous efforts then to become more efficient or more profitable. Um, and so uh, they started both buying up franchises but closing down plants. Um, at the same time, you have in the Colombian government this moment of apertura, like opening, right, the free market, um, liberalization, all the Colombian economy and government, they've always been pretty kind of open to U.S. investment, and right, we could talk about that um, as well. And, it's, and they were not in the same kind of debt crisis as a lot of other countries, but there was this sort of push, this sort of austerity push um, in that moment. And, um, and there's this enactment of this Ley Cincuenta, which is a labor reform, which established this kind of um, informal labor regime that most of us are under, um, and Colombian workers are under, which uh, really created uh, a way for there being massive kind of subcontracting of, of workers. And so within Colombian plants, Colombian Coca-Cola plants, um, very few of the workers are actually employed directly, even by the franchise owner. Not even, like, they're not employed by Coca-Cola, right, or even the franchise owner. Instead, they're subcontracted to right, different kind of hiring um, agencies. They are not eligible to unionize, right, it, for the Coca-Cola plant. The union that, this union that I study would talk about, Sino China, cannot organize them. They cannot strike. Similarly, Sino China cannot strike because they're a minority union, so they're not by Colombian labor law not eligible to strike. And Colombian labor law encourages um, the creation of multiple unions in a single workplace. And so there's all of these, what they call sindicatos amarillos, the company unions um, that are created basically to undercut the, the right, membership of other unions. And so you have a situation where there's very little labor power. Right, there's no horizontal solidarity. That's, yeah, the that's the other thing is there's all this competition and the, and mm. the companies play play workers off of each other, they each have, you know, they get different kind of agreements, and so it's um, this very bad um, organizing situation for uh, a lot of unionists. Same time, this is um, also the moment which the, this is really unbelievably um, egregious paramilitary violence against trade unionists in Colombia. The, the kind of long-standing um, civil conflict between guerrillas and the Colombian state and paramilitaries that have been going on for decades, um, you know, reaches this moment that it's the, the kind of civilian populace is, is, you know, getting picked off pretty, pretty horribly, especially if you are a kind of radical unionist, of which this trade union that represents Colombian workers is using a very kind of classista language which in some ways makes them vulnerable because the labor movement around them is not necessarily as vocally kind of Marxist as, as they are, um, and they're being targeted as guerrillas and kind of leftists and are being uh, killed off. And so you have um, tr a trade unionist, you have uh, basically 10 Coca-Cola Colombian trade unionists were killed. Um, one of whom was killed like at the plant itself. You have all of these kind of threats against the trade 
trade unions, you know, Kainan, so they're losing members. Um, and it's this moment in which they launch a kind of international solidarity campaign to try to draw attention to this. And which year is this? This is basically the from... Campaign? It's, it's at its height, like 2000 to 2007. Right. Um, and as a result, um, you know, dozens of colleges and universities in North America, and actually it's probably more, much more than that when you include Europe, um, and they're kind of, uh, they, they usually have exclusive agreements with a soda company, right, to provide drinks on their campuses. Right. Like, they cut their contracts. And so I'm, I'm just interested in the ways in which... Uh, and this, this, by the way, if I can interrupt yeah. very briefly, Amanda, this is a high point in the early 21st century of undergrad activism, really the most interesting in the preceding 15 years since apartheid and probably going back prior to that to the Vietnam War. Student activism that's very intense against these pseudo-subcontract arrangements that are originally really about original manufacturers, um, you know, especially when it comes to textile, clothing, footwear, mm -hmm. college apparel that is made under sweatshop circumstances. Right. And it's very effective, this sort of campaign, the way boycotts normally aren't. Right. But it worked very effectively. And a lot of Midwestern campuses, right. also NYU, some privates and so on, are yeah. involved yeah. in that. Right? It's actually the same groups of people. So yeah. United Students yeah. Against Sweatshops, right. the, even the US labor movement, like the traditional US you know, AFL-CIO, mm -hmm. is, is entering into a moment of kind of more social movement unionism. The American Federation of Labor Central Industrial Organization, which is the historic compromise meeting of the right and left wings of a trade union movement to produce something that is right wing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's not very, not very. Well. But they're, they're sort of getting the sense that U.S. labor is really, really struggling, and so that maybe they mm. should be taking on new forms of organizing, right? Organizing other kinds yep. of people, right? The others and creating kind of, uh, you know, solidarity connections with other kinds of um, struggles, and so this kind of social movement unionism takes place, um, and. One of, the, one of the things that's really inspiring about the whole situation is that, uh, you know, they were able to launch a kind of multi-pronged campaign of which these Columbian unions were, were pretty central even in the kind of like thinking through in that it was a kind of uh, a corporate campaign that attacked the brand in lots of ways and uh, called on a boycott for uh, people, mostly young people, that took off in campuses uh, to, you know, not consume or purchase or try to end the kind of financial relationships of their institutions with the company. There's also mm -hmm. a major legal component. They they filed mm -hmm. a lawsuit uh, under the Alien Tort Claims Act in the United States um, uh, over these murders, and, which was trying to set kind of major precedent for holding U.S. corporations. It's accountable. The, the great yeah. thing about this Alien Torts Act that Amanda mentions is that it's a very old, like 200 yeah, years old piece of legislation. It's fucking fantastic <laughs> because it enables civil rights attorneys, leftist attorneys in the United States, to go after corporations that do anything anywhere, basically, mm -hmm. provided they have some presence in the United States. Right. It doesn't always work by any means, but it embarrasses severely. I mean, Chevron is a classic yeah. case, but plenty of others as right. well. Right, and so this code case was one of the first ones, really. And so yeah. this Daniel Kovalik, who's the United Steelworkers lawyer, has sort of taken the lead and led a lot of these campaigns. And, um, and so... And then, uh, sort of on the ground, kind of direct, direct action by the workers themselves. Um, and they're sort of bound by the difficulty of not really being able to have kind of formal state-recognized strikes. Mm -hmm. So they're holding hunger strikes, they're doing like performative street theater, like die-ins and this kind of stuff. Um, and so uh, it is a, a really kind of compelling. There are a lot of challenges that, that they face, obviously, through that. Obviously, I think there are real limitations to a kind of 
consumption-based kind of social movement model. And so, um, and students, while they really, they understood that because these there's models in front of them, right? There's a kind of sort of visceral response that they can have to the commodity themselves and, and, and avoid it or um, critique it. There was amazing kind of protests on campuses in which, you know, um, the, the bottles become performatively attacked in various modes and the advertising obviously is such a central part of daily life um, you know wherever Coca-Cola does business that it, there are tons of texts right that could be kind of uh, you know played with it's in the great semiotic ways that we know and so um, but there are real limits I think to the, the kind of um, consumption model there also was Although I think a real anti-corporate critique that emerged amongst U.S. activists, I think I think there was a more difficult um, uh, way for them. It was more difficult for them to to kind of connect with the really powerful class-based critique that the Colombian unionists had. Um, in that, one of the not explain one. Basically, in the U.S., it really became communicated as a kind of human rights issue. Right, the Colombian unionists were being killed. And uh, it was much easier to represent that. It was seemed all the more horrifying for the Colombian trade unionists. That obviously that was horrible, right? That I mean, the, their comrades are being killed. Um, but they also had a, a kind of a massive uh, labor critique of the ways in which their 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 lives and and work uh, were structured by the company. And so they wanted were calling for an end to the kinds of forms of subcontracting, right, which were undercutting their labor power. Um, they also have a, a really powerful kind of uh, social movement unionism critique of Colombian um, food sovereignty and food sustainability. And so uh, they're, they're a food workers union, and that's why they organize Coke um, workers. And so um, right, they were calling for agrarian reforms and um, nationalization of industry and industries, and um, this is at the moment in which the U.S. is negotiating trade agreements, right, with Central America and, and Colombia, and, and they were calling for, uh, right, all sorts of considerations of what it meant for agricultural workers as well as the populace who needed access to certain kinds of food. And um, that kind of stuff was much harder to communicate to white middle class and I shouldn't it was actually a pretty diverse group of people but like to, to college students in the United States um, and so that became you're brought up to think of themselves as responsible consumer citizens but not as fellow workers yeah with international solidarity absolutely. let's be honest yeah that's, that's yeah absolutely and even the, the sort of signification of the, the like the dead Colombian worker in yeah. in Colombia they're martyrs right and there's yeah. this sort of in the, yeah. in, in the US they were victims and it was like hard to actually have a conversation I think amongst activists right from across those those divides um, Similarly, the, like the legal battle and the corporate campaign, which is um, run by Ray Rogers, who's uh, who's been involved in other kind of um, corporate campaigns, were also sort of hard to get on the same right kind of program at all times. Mm -hmm. um, the court case was thrown out because of the sort of well, not thrown out. The Coca-Cola company was relieved from the camp from the case because of the nature of the ways in which. The, their business structure, the sort of franchise nature, right? So they are not the direct employers of these workers. So, they, right? and so, and we can talk about that's an essential part of how this whole business works. And you see it obviously very spectacularly today that people will know about the way Apple and Samsung and others distance themselves. 
from the various companies that manufacture their products, like the toy that we're talking into now, by saying, well, we'll do surveillance of their labor relations, but you can't sue us. Right. We're not, right, we're not liable. And it is this sort of levels of liability through yeah. corporate um, right. structuring. So, uh, and then eventually, because the campaign was so powerful, Coca-Cola did offer a very pretty significant settlement, um, and actually the Colombian workers turned it down, much to the chagrin of some of the other groups involved, partly because it was just about getting money to their certain workers and their families, which meant not a, a change to any of the structural things they were asking for, and frankly made them more of a target in the context of their daily life in Colombia. And so, you know, they were like, this is, so it, it's a really kind of complicated and, and interesting story. And But actually, the, the current moment, there is some there is some hope that we have this NLRB decision in the United States. <laughs> National Labor Relations Board, which is the federal government's industrial or labor relations machinery. Right. Um, just, this, just this week, that's organized around this, the foods, food workers. Um, well, actually, it comes out of, I think, warehouse workers, actually, were the ones who brought the case forward. But uh, there's been tons of organized around foods, the food um, service workers. Uh, Starbucks and fast food workers and, um, and attempts to organize and them encountering the problem of the franchise model, right? That they are all employed by smaller franchise owners and were not able to hold the, the, the larger companies accountable. And now um, the NLRB has decided that they are kind of joint employers, that in fact these larger corporations should be held accountable. And so the question of whether a company like Coca-Cola is accountable for their labor relations, no matter how many degrees of subcontracting take place, um, is, is kind of open at this moment, I think, which, which is I exciting. didn't know about that. By the way, Amanda's using the word food, and people should know that my recollection, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that about 10 years ago, one of Coke's great campaigns was to have itself recognized as food. <laughs> I don't know that. No, have a look into it, because I've got this sense that there's some judgment or some application they make such oh, that no. it counts as a food. Oh no. Oh, I mean God. really wonderful. It may very well. And it, <laughs> so all this leads up to this final chapter which sort of brings this out is that it's sort of how co the company responds to these kinds of critiques, these mm. sort of popular critiques mm. and um, they do respond. They try, you know, they so this sort of emer like emergence of corporate social responsibility of which the Coca-Cola company has actually take a Taken a strong leadership in the kind of versions of kind capitalism that we've seen in the last Wakala. decade. Or to, to use the technical expression, bath on a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> but there are these forms of kind of greenwashing and bloomwashing, and uh, yeah. I don't know if there's a version for food yet, but there's this major health crisis. So, so the labor response is they, they hire this head of global labor relations who um, actually is a former mathematics department is decreeing it, but it's four o'clock. The former uh, employee, employer, sorry, represented the ILO, which is one of the major International ways... National Labor Organization. Yeah, which is one of the ways in which these unions were able to kind of lodge critiques on the international labor level. I mean, there's some problems, as we know mm. what that process might look like, but... Uh, so he, he is like taken a leadership in sort of establishing workplace workplace standards across the Coca-Cola world system, as they call it, but which, of course, the subcontracted workers who are a significant portion of the factory workers and bottling workers are not eligible. But it's a sense of a kind of um, 
others to talk <laughs> over it. A sort of a, sort of a, a cord, right, with labor that's been established. Um, and they've, they've like the IUF, International Union of Food Workers, um, uh, which has this, this sort of like international, right, kind of literally international they, they have agreements with, with Coca-Cola. They've sort of, sort of given them sort of props for, for making these kinds of... So they've tried to smooth over kind of labor critiques like that. Similarly, around um, the environment, they've, they've partnered. There's just sort of levels of kind of greenwashing, you could argue, um, by partnering with various um, WWF to, to, to sort of try to conserve watersheds. And, um, they've invested a ton of money in India, for example, in training around um, drip irrigation and establishing uh, new forms of, of, of wells that um, agricultural communities can use. And similarly around health, they're simultaneously battling, I don't know what say, with all these things, they still are battling actual um, regulation of their industries around these issues, right? Instead offering a kind of model of uh, right, corporate correction, right? Self-regulatory -re self corrections of these problems. Similarly around health in the United States and in Mexico and other parts of the world, there's these campaigns to tax, right? Soft drinks and um, not allow them in certain locations, like schools. Keep them out of schools and exactly. so on. And the, I mean, the principal goal of this search for a social license to operate is to avoid state regulation, where there'll be exactly. real, potentially real democratic slash bureaucratic authority exercised over their business. Right, absolutely. And they, and they, they, they very smartly realize that they can invest, and it's a ton of money, it's not to say it's not a ton of money, mm -hmm. in these kinds of things, but it's... It, it's that, worth it. It's worth it, absolutely, versus the... And I think a lot of people write this off as, as simply just kind of public relations spin, and I think I think in some ways we, should, we need to pay more attention to mm -hmm. it because it's it's more sinister. It's more that. sinister. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. I think people really, you know, have come, and they don't. It's not like they don't think they're doing good because they do think they're doing good, and you know, on the, at small levels they may actually really be doing good. But this sort of sense that um, that you know. Capital provides alternatives that you know can keep society moving forward, rather than actually sort of allowing themselves to be accountable to what society mm. demands of them, right? And so, they, by offering solutions, um, they're contributing to our sense that there's there's nothing wrong. In fact, the market doesn't need kind of mm. any kind of monitoring. So, um, whether that be state by state or social movements. And, and it's hard because it really puts social movements in a tough position of always having to be, um, you know, pushing against the smiling face of, of the company. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's where the book ends. But actually, much of the, half of the book is really before 1950. <laughs> but the, the, it's earlier, this later stuff, obviously, is what brought me to the project. So I feel like these are questions for our day. Okay. Wow. Well... We've got a couple of minutes left. Yeah, I'm sorry to talk so much about the... Not at all. I'm excited was, to be working. <laughs> not at all. It was what I was hoping you would tell us about. It's really exciting. Um, how does Amanda know all this? <laughs> That's a good question. So, what, I mean, so the research... Uh, I, I'm sort of... I fancy myself trained as a historian, actually. A kind of media and cultural historian with a strong kind of cultural studies bent. Um, but, so the, the project is really... Um, based on a lot of archival work in the U.S., um, as well as kind of ethnographic and participant observation work in India and Colombia, as well as archival work there um, over several years. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I mean, my own training is kind of openly uh, undisciplined, I guess. I my undergraduate degree in American Civilization from Brown with a focus in um, Latino studies and Latino media studies. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Spanish language television in the United States and there was so much Latin American media industries and certain Latino elites in the United States constructed a kind of, his, quote, Hispanic audience. And people may not know that Univision in particular, there are three major free-to-air television networks in Spanish in the U.S. Univision in particular sometimes wins the ratings of all television and is always just about in the top four and certainly in the top five, including all English and Spanish language networks ever since there was a kind of ratings barrier that initially Spanish language media wanted but then became an obstacle to their getting good advertising rates. Mm -hmm. Ever since that came down this has been disclosed and because Latinos are disproportionately poor, they tend to be watching a lot of broadcast television rather than cable. Right. So, therefore, you can get a really yeah. big audience. And even in this moment, like stream, the crisis around streaming media, suddenly Latino audiences are now deemed valuable in an even more powerful way, right, which is really you, interesting. You can get, you can get them. You can get you them can, still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so it's really interesting. It's, so it's always really interesting, these questions of the economy, um, but also media text, and, um, and similarly, that had a kind of, like, heavy kind of interviewing component. It's Did nice it? to work with people, yeah. So all those Rhode Island Latinos exactly, it was Rhode, in exactly. the media. There's a lot of time in Pawtucket <laughs> <laughs> and Providence. Okay. And then I worked at Sesame Street and CBS Television briefly uh-huh. after which, thinking Which I w- are now part of HBO, everybody, yes. in case you didn't oh hear. Oh my gosh, I know, yeah. this is a major wow. change. Yeah. And then I went back to graduate school at Yale, also in American Studies, um, and at the moment of the sort of transnationalization of American studies and did sort of the kind of U.S. and the world uh, kind of work on that. Um, I was very lucky to work with Michael Denning as my advisor um, and be part of this uh, globalization and culture working group in which we did a lot of collective research and publication. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, so it's, which kept me in graduate school in various ways, as well as being part of the kind of graduate student union and having a kind of... Yes, and yeah. mentioning the National Labor Relations Board, as we did, uh, that, the Yale intervention there, both by students and, sadly, by a lot of faculty on the other side of it, not Michael, was historic in, in both ways, both in favour and against immunisation. Actually, at Brown as well, yeah. NYU, these were the key struggle. To, this was the key terrain of struggle for getting grad students recognised as employees. Mm-hmm. In any event, wow, what an exciting history. So did you do, was the Coca-Cola stuff your doctorate? Yes, exactly, yeah, it's my dissertation. Yeah. So I'm yeah. still trying to, yeah, finish. You live with it for a long time. But yeah, I came to, and in some ways, people always ask me, like, why Coca-Cola? It's not like I have a very strong, it wasn't like I was denied sodas as a kid or, like, <laughs> drank. I don't love the brand, I don't hate the brand necessarily. Right. But I was looking for a project that um, had a, a kind of, allow me to tell a kind of, corporate political economic kind of story allow me to work with texts you mm. know and um, allow me to think about the ways in which popular meaning and social struggle played out mm-hmm. around those things and so sort of just finding that Venn diagram of what it was that wonderful that. So well it's looking for topics it's an inspirational story and it's a great relief not to be told that someone studies something because it's about them because I feel as it is in a lot of that so thank you so much Amanda and thank I want you. to 
extract a promise from you, if I may, that when the book comes out, you return to the pod. You come charging into town with your Coca-Cola publishing bottling device <laughs> under both arms, chuntering along, and tell us about the, the new volume. Yeah? I would love Great. to. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you.